are very excited about today's podcast for a variety of reasons. First, today's guest, an old friend, David Gill, is someone we have been trying to get on, come on this podcast for a while, uh, but David has dodged us, but we finally nailed him down. I think a lot of guilt was involved, but we're very grateful because you will hear an incredible story from him. The other reason we're excited about today's podcast is that it is our 99th or 100th or maybe 101st podcast, but it's in the range of 100 podcasts. And when we began, I'm not sure we thought we would do more than a dozen podcasts. And this was, a, this was an endeavor for our students during COVID because they were suffering, listening to us on Zoom. And so we thought, you know, we need to produce some content and we're not doing such a great job of our Zoom teaching. So maybe we'll have our really smart friends come on and we'll ask them difficult questions and then the students can learn from that. And now it's been a hundred podcasts and we're having a great time. So if, if anybody listens, we're super grateful to our students. We're extremely grateful to you for indulging us. And we owe a special, special thanks to Liana. Liana has uh, stood by us through thick and thin and made this podcast work. So I, I'm incredibly grateful to Mark uh, for indulging me and carrying us uh, and to Liana. But to the matter at hand, Welcome to our podcast, David. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, David, I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about this incredible book. And as a preamble, the way I heard about the book was actually through the podcast. And a friend of mine at the U.S. Treasury reached out at the beginning of our podcast series and said, you know, there's this guy who came to give a talk here who has an incredibly interesting story. He's writing a book about it. Maybe you should reach out to him. And it might be a more interesting podcast than some of the ones you have been doing so far. And the book was The Long Shadow of Default. And it's, it is an incredible story, but David, I, I want to give you a couple minutes uh, to tell us what this incredible story is about. Well, firstly, thank you very much again for having me on. And that's a very generous description, and I'll, I'll take it. So the, the core story of the book is, and I'll try and be very brief here, that the British government borrowed billions of dollars from the United States during and immediately after the First World War. and not a lot of people seem to know that Britain ultimately defaulted on that debt. And what the book tries to do is build on the small amount of academic research that tells that story. And there, there is some fantastic work out there already. What I've tried to do is expand that story to talk about the consequences of that default. So I offer some new interpretations or emphasize some different arguments about why the British government defaulted when it did. It was 
one of the last major European states to default on its audits in the United States. But really, the story of the post-default period, I think, has been unfairly neglected. And the book goes into more detail about how these, these unpaid debts affected relations between Britain and America during and immediately after the Second World War. And in many ways, they went on beyond that, affecting policymaking in Britain and in the United States in the 1970s, right the way through up to the 1990s. Everything from credit rating agencies through to legal and accounting challenges and even congressional arguments in the 1970s. So there really is a long legacy of this default, but it's hidden. And a lot of it isn't broadly about the costs of refinancing or about the terms of renegotiating debt. It's much more political and it's much more diplomatic. So I like the the, the fact that there are so many and such widespread political ramifications is one of, frankly, really many new things to me that I learned from the book. But I'm, I'm hoping we can continue with just a couple more uh, stage setting questions, if you'll indulge us. Can you give us a sense of how much the debt's worth today? I, I suppose there are disputes over how one should account for it and what uh, what interest rate one should impute to it and so forth. But can you give us a sense of the size of it and also of just the the sort of market ramifications for the for the British government. I mean, one would think that a long extended default like this would have some spillover effects in terms of costs of borrowing and so forth. And I'm, I'm hoping you can tell us whether that happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great questions. And I think it's one of the most frequent questions that I receive about this book. And it was one of the things that really fascinated me early on in my own research. So we don't have a precise figure for the debt, but what we do have is a report that was published by the US Treasury pretty much from the 1930s onwards. And I've collected as many as I can up until 2009. And at 2009, the figure that the British government owed to the United States was approximately $13.8 billion. And I can kind of chart the increases in debt every year, roughly, so that as it stands today, the total figure would be approximately $18 billion that the British government owes to the United States. And that's in large part to the excellent record keeping for almost a century of the US Treasury. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is that's just the amount as it stands, obviously been affected by inflation and many market and economic changes over the course of many, many decades. In the book, I mentioned in the footnotes that we can make a relative output comparison. So if we compared the figure of one, sorry, $4.7 billion in 1934, that would equate to a 2019 figure of $1.51 trillion. Now, there are obviously going to be problems when we have historical comparisons, but I think that's a useful figure because it gives some context and some weight to the size of these debts and why they are so important and why the United States government might understandably be, and let's be generous here, concerned about getting their money back. Now, in terms of the broader economic spillover effect, I think most sovereign defaults would involve economic trade-offs, economic costs, and we don't really see that here. And there's the famous quote, and it's from the excellent work of Patricia Clavin and many other scholars besides, and it's 
from as well, I should also point out Robert Self, two fantastic scholars who really helped for my own research. But the famous quote is, you know, not a dog has barked from the Charter of the Exchequer at that time. And what's so special about this particular default is the economic conditions. It's really still in the post Great Depression era. There isn't much or at least trade has been significantly depressed. But the important point here is that Britain isn't looking to borrow. So the potential harm to reputation and future borrowing costs isn't really factored in. And interestingly, Britain was one of the first states to borrow from the United States again after the Second World War, although I suspect we'll maybe come on to that in a moment. So what's interesting about this is that the consequences were relatively limited. The economic consequences were relatively limited and the political consequences, at least in Britain, were relatively limited. But my argument would be that we need to cast a wider net. And if we look at the broader international political consequences, and particularly the diplomatic consequences, there were some significant costs involved with this default. So, David, I, I, I want to um, stick on this topic for a bit more because it is so big and so important for the conventional wisdom about the costs of default and especially for countries that have a long history of borrowing the story that is currently being told in the united states about the debt ceiling is that the costs of even coming close to a technical default where you're still paying everybody but you know you have some internal statutory drama incredibly stupid drama, uh, are going to be gargantuan. Literally every day one can read in the press in the US and the international financial press about sort of Armageddon coming to us uh, because the US might have uh, some kind of technical difficulties. And if these people were only to read your book, they they might have some uh, second thoughts. And Earlier in this season, we had Ugo Panitza come and talk about sort of the flip side of this question that has occurred often in sovereign debt history, which is when a country that doesn't have the money or is running short does pay, do they get huge benefits? And he, his paper, I think, was about Colombia during the Latin American debt crisis. And unlike most of the other Latin American countries, Colombia keeps paying. And they look, he and his co-authors, they they look at whether or not Colombia gets a huge benefit from the markets. And it doesn't really look like there was any benefit to Colombia for not uh, defaulting when everybody else did in comparison. So your story, uh, which can be extended to other defaults, such as those of China uh, after the the takeover by the communists or Russia after the removal of the czar. Again, countries where you know it's not really clear that the markets penalize one as much as the literature says, or as policymakers. Uh, like to say. So all of that is to to ask you, given that you've probably given this some thought, what is the reason for what I would call a false myth in 
both academia and policy circles. Do we think that there's some benefit to having this myth out there, this myth that you can never default, the costs will be huge? Maybe, maybe we think that if people realize that the costs are not that big, they'll do it more. So we should just have this myth out there. Or maybe you don't think it's a myth, but I think you do. So I am always really wary of sweeping generalizations. And I think the danger of saying that we should always repay or that repayment always carries certain kinds of risks is that there are always going to be anomalies. And I think that the British case or France in this period are better understood perhaps as anomalies because of the quite unique economic conditions of the Great Depression. So I'm sympathetic to claims that states should repay their debts and that it's a bit of a gamble. But I don't think that necessarily excludes the argument that in some cases, repayment probably doesn't make as much sense as the conventionalism might suggest. So for Britain, there were certainly the 1930s or 1934 post period, few immediate economic costs. And there's a wonderful book called uh, American Default, which looks at some of the consequences of the United States default or its, its conversion uh, in, in the period of the 1930s under Roosevelt. And it's a similar kind of argument that in the right conditions, default needn't be necessarily as costly as we might imagine. Now, that's not to say that default in typical circumstances or in normal conditions isn't a bad thing. It probably is. I think in most cases, in most countries, in most situations, default would carry a heavy cost and that should be a deterrent. But whether or not it's the right course of action, I think it's really hard to generalize because it will depend on what the government's trying to do, how the debt's going to be managed, the longer term consequences of repayment. So I think there are going to always be some examples where default isn't necessarily as bad as it might seem, even if in this case, I think some of the costs are hidden. But I would be wary about making a sweeping statement about all countries or all periods. And I think in that sense, we agree that there are always going to be exceptions and we should be wary. And I think it's tricky because there's always the drive to try and find kind of a universal explanation. If we're talking about kind of political science based explanation or even for many historians, we want some kind of overlap. And I wouldn't want to go too far the other way and say that every event is special and unique, but it's trying to find a balance between the two. And I think that's really where, where it's, it's more challenging. Can we talk a little bit about the longer term political consequences of the, of the default? I want to, to make sure that we get that story out and maybe to preempt a a question from me too, if I can sort of raise the Johnson Act too as part of that story and ask um, that you at least give us a little bit of a, a background behind the Johnson Act and maybe we can talk about its significance as well. So that's, I think that's sort of two questions. The, the broader consequences for diplomatic relations with the United States but um, I'm also interested in particular about the effect of the Johnson Act. Sure. So I think the longer term diplomatic consequences are most clear in the decade following default. So probably up until the mid 1940s, we can see quite a significant amount of diplomatic fallout. 
And I would argue, and I'm not trying to replace the wonderful work of many other historians and political scientists, that existing accounts are not quite complete. There's a lot of reasons why the United States would have been hesitant to support the United Kingdom as it went to war in the late 1930s with Germany. My point is that these debts factored into US thinking and it added power or an added significance to congressional concerns about supporting the British government because they could always turn back and say, well, look, they still haven't paid from World War One. Why would we support them in World War Two? We know that's the case because we can see that in the congressional record. So it added another roadblock for Roosevelt to try and get funding to the British government. But even once the war is underway, and even once Lendley's had been put into operation, President Roosevelt wasn't willing to forgo the debt, and I don't think any president has been. And this lingering resentment kind of faded away as the war began to intensify, particularly from the US side. But when things had calmed down, there's an interesting period between the end of, of the Second World War and the onset of the Cold War, where these debts really took a larger role in political discourse. And this is when I think a lot of people were very unhappy. America had spent a lot of money supporting Britain again for the Second World War. They were being asked to now give money for the Anglo-American loan in 1945 and 1946. And these debts, you know, considering size, and the way in which default occurred, I think really was a difficult pill to swallow for many Americans and certainly for many senators. So there were immediate consequences in the limitations on how much Britain could borrow or the terms of the agreement or how generous America was willing to be. And I think although the power of these unpaid debts or the shadow fades somewhat as we go decade by decade, this is something that isn't easily forgiven. You know, when America had economic difficulties in the 1970s, one of the first things that congressmen and congresswomen pointed to was, well, look how well Europe's doing comparatively, and they still owe us lots of money from World War I. And these kind of concerns don't really disappear. We see them for Britain in the 1970s, worried about how the global markets will consider its default when it's going for its first credit rating in the 1970s or its first return to the credit, credit rating agencies in 1978. Right the way through to the 1990s, we have the fall of the Berlin Wall, and America are worried that France and possibly Britain will be seeking reparations again. And it's very clear to mention to Britain, much to British Treasury makers surprise, that Britain still owes these debts. So the debts are still there. They still affect decision making. They're still floating around. And they're also useful often for the United States, whether that's to blame other countries or as a tool to try and get diplomatic concessions. And I don't think that's novel to the 1990s, 1970s. We can see it in the 1930s with respect to the Johnson Act. So the Johnson Act, for anyone who isn't familiar, was a, a kind of a, an agreement passed by Congress in which any country that had reduced its payments during the Great Depression to the United States now had to go back to full payment. So the British government had paid the full amount in 1932, and then made two token payments in 1933. And in 1934, the Johnson Act was passed and British government were then confronted with a much larger repayment. And that obviously created some difficulties and many countries that hadn't really decided to default yet did so, the United Kingdom being one of them. And a lot of people, political scientists and historians have said that the Johnson Act was simplistic or didn't understand what was going on, was just naive. And I understand those arguments 
important, but I think that's probably a little bit too narrow in assessing the motivations behind acts like the Johnson Act, because it complemented and in many ways helped to represent a really popular non-interventionist mood in the United States. We see that in, in many different ways, but it also allowed policymakers in the US to blame Britain, France, Europe more broadly for a lot of the economic difficulties of the Great Depression. It allowed them to have a scapegoat. And crucially as well, and I think this was intentional, that the Johnson Act in many ways signaled to the president and to the American people that America would not be drawn in to another war, that this was an impediment that could be used to stop Britain, France, Germany arming because they wouldn't have access to US funds and it would keep peace on the continent or at the very least would stop America being dragged into another war. So I don't think it was necessarily purely naive or ignorant. There were political drivers going on there. And these war debts have therefore always been more than just an outright debt. It's not just a financial transaction. And it's true for both countries, Britain and America, and the many other countries involved in these, in these debts. And Britain's broader lending and the reparations saga. It's a political tool as much as an economic debt, and it's a political tool that both sides have tried to use. To dig a little deeper on the Johnson Act that I, I find fascinating, if one looks at the Johnson Act with the benefit of hindsight, would you say that it was effective in terms of getting debtors to pay, uh, particularly to repay U.S. Uh, lenders and the U.S. government? Uh, what, what, I mean, was the threat of the Johnson Act effective i mean and also the johnson act it looks awfully similar to the imf's lending into arrears policy at least as applied initially and i'm wondering whether that was where it went to live because right now uh, the johnson act i mean nobody even knows about it other than you uh, but it, it's fascinating that this was considered to be something of an effective strategy. And I'm just wondering how history has treated it. The, the Johnson Act, I think, as a goal to secure repayment was an abject failure. So it didn't really achieve very much from many countries. There are a, a small number of exceptions, Finland being the famous exception. But as a, as a tool to try and secure payment from countries that were hesitant about repaying or to try and encourage countries that had already defaulted to begin repayment. It was an abject failure. And I don't think there's really many redeeming features from an economic perspective, a broad economic perspective. Having said that, I think there is some context to the use of the Johnson Act. So in the 1920s, the United States had made some broad threats, and in some sense, it had encouraged other countries to begin repayment by making life difficult from an economic from an economic perspective. I'm thinking here of France in the 1920s. So I could understand why people might think there was an effective precedent or that perhaps the United States could use its power. But again, the economic circumstances of the Great Depression really make this a bit of a tall order. It's going to be very difficult to convince countries that were struggling or have just begun to, begun to improve economically. They should focus their energies on repaying the United States. And this comes back to a much broader point these lingering resentments in Britain and especially in France about the debts in the first place. This was in many ways a shared effort 
to secure the safety and security of the world against Germany in World War One, and it had in many ways enriched America and American trade. And I think there was a great deal of unhappiness aimed at the United States from many European states because of the cost of financing these debts and also the fact that America did very well in many regards out of the First World War. So the opportunities that the Great Depression created in terms of a chance for the British government, a chance for the French government to push back on what it owed to the United States. And many, many, many countries were trying to reduce the terms of payment. The Johnson Act went against that and made it much more difficult and much more expensive to repay the debt. So it made an unpopular debt even harder to repay. And in that sense, it was counterproductive. And I think you can see those elements of counterproductive debt claims in many examples, and you raised an excellent one there. And it's something that I think a lot of lenders would do well to try and avoid. If you're trying to get your money back, there perhaps are better ways. This brings up another question that you raised in the book, and I very much wanted to ask you about. And I think there were there was a British prominent British politician, uh, prime minister maybe, uh, who who talked about how we have already paid them in blood. Now you want what little money we have also? And in the history of sovereign debt, as, as you well know, and as Mark and I have obsessed over for a long time, uh, there is much discussion of the notion of odious debts and bad debts that you don't have to pay, uh, or at least uh, that countries like uh, China and uh, Russia don't think that they should pay, and they haven't paid for uh, over a century. This very old debt uh, seems to be a close cousin of those in the sense that part of the argument that the UK has been making and maybe the U.S. accepting is that these are virtuous debts. This was, we were fighting on the side of good and you benefited and you should you should not get any more benefit. I mean, the, so much of the talk is moralistic and I'm wondering how much, how much you think morality plays into the fact that the UK ultimately didn't pay and that the US really, I mean, US politicians are not going around uh, today uh, jumping up and down, not even Donald Trump, uh, saying the, the UK owes us over a trillion uh, dollars and uh, that will solve our debt ceiling problem. Instead, they, they keep very quiet about this while not forgiving it. So is this, I know this is not, you will say it's much more complicated and nuanced uh, and all that, but does this just boil down to that these were virtuous debts? It's much more complicated and nuanced than that. No, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> so yes, I, I think that you have to, you have to think about this from the policymaker's perspective, and you have to think about it in terms of a broader moral or maybe even ethical concern here. But it, it goes both ways. So one of the elements that I found from 
researching this project is that yes there's the familiar arguments about how unfair these debts are and i think you're absolutely right on that point and that does really influence a lot of policy making and policy making debates particularly in other countries like france but even even in britain on the other hand we see what i might refer to as a repayment norm and that is that many countries particularly britain and particularly many of the chancellors and senior members of the government believe that it's right and honorable to pay your debts and englishman always pays his debts and that is really two different ethical or moral or normative concerns pulling in different ways so you've got kind of a clash here and every country seems to deal with this in a slightly different way so france was very quick for example to default in 1932 and in the chamber of deputies repeatedly citing the unfairness of these debts and britain did so to a far lesser extent and those those debates did exist but they really began to reduce in severity by about 1923, because in 1923, the British government came to terms and was the first government to come to terms with the United States. And it said, look, we think this is unfair, we'll negotiate. And they came to slightly better terms and began repayment in 1923. So a lot of the arguments that it was morally unfair or in a broader sense, an odious debt are, I think, pushed to the side at that point because the British government says we accept and agree and we think it's important that a British government, a British person, Britain always pays its debts. Now we know that 11 years later Britain would default, but at the time that, that particular concern seemed more important to Britain. And I think it's not just ethical concerns, although they're important or moral or normative concerns, it's also because Britain wanted to improve trade, it wanted closer cooperation with the United States, and crucially, it wanted to set an example to its own debt, as Britain was a creditor country, and it was very interested in ensuring that debts were treated with respect, and that itself it could lend and begin to recapture its position, or at least begin to benefit from, from the global economy. So I think all of those things do merge together, and it becomes very complicated to try and extract one particular cause for default or one particular legacy. But you're absolutely right. And I think there is a neglect in the literature about these normative concerns, about how people think about the debts. It's not just money. It's not just a contract written on paper. It's more than that. And people have strong feelings. People have lost lives, have lost friends, family, loved ones. It's very difficult then to generate political support if the country that's benefited from those lost lives at the same time is now asking for more money. But just to be fair to my wonderful American colleagues and friends, Britain did agree to those terms and was happy to do so in 1923. So it's very murky, it's very difficult, and it all ties in to broader debates about reparations. Britain lent lots of money itself, and it becomes very difficult to not only disentangle the logic for Britain, but for many countries and all the different variables within those countries. So it's, it's a really, really tricky thing. And I think that's, that's the value of doing a deep dive into one particular case study, because it becomes much more difficult to generalize. But I think you're right. There are many missing elements when we're talking about sovereign debt. And one of them is this, this broader ethical, moral, normative concern. So speaking of of generalizing inappropriately. Um, <laughs> I can't help but think about the the potential lessons for and links to 
U.S. lending to Ukraine, uh, which obviously is a very, very different context, but one that it seems to me it has to be shaped in some way by the episode that you've written about, both in technical ways, like I, as I understand it, much of the military equipment lending is on the lend-lease model, but also in sort of the broader optics of the the relationship and the purpose of the the lending here, in the sense that the U.S. is uh, again with very in a very different context, but the U.S. is funding uh, a good war that that uh, benefits the United States uh, in at least some important ways, and you know I'm. You know, my my sense is that the nobody thinks of the UK as having a trillion dollar debt to the United States. They they think of the UK as having a a political problem, maybe that's rooted in that debt, but it's not conceptualized as a real financial obligation. And and that itself is probably not going to be true for Ukraine. But I wonder whether there are lessons that we can take away, even at a fairly high level of abstraction, for further. The, the current mess and current U.S. efforts to support the war in Ukraine? Sure. I think, as you quite rightly point out, obviously there are different circumstances and different conditions, but there, there are perhaps some insights. And I think looking at the U.S., policymakers and Treasury officials, and Treasury officials you know, in Her Majesty's Treasury, and His Majesty's Treasury, I should say, and in the U.S. Treasury have done you know, a phenomenal job, not just in helping and supporting this project, but in also helping and learning and advising policymakers. And I think one of the things that looking back to history or looking back to previous examples can help to do is to highlight some of the risks associated with lending. And one of those risks, I think, is that it's very hard to divorce lending from, say, the broader political or military or strategic ambitions. So what I mean by that is that states like Ukraine may not be able to repay. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the question that the United States government should possibly be asking itself is, well, what happens, whatever happens in the end, what happens when we come to collect or when we need to try and balance the books or whatever it might be? Because one of the big lessons learned from the difficulties of US lending in World War One, and it's very clear from World War II that the United States desperately tried to avoid the problems that it had in World War I, is that traditional loans, particularly higher interest rate loans, create a lot of problems, breed a lot of resentment. And that's difficult when you're working with allies because you might want to work with them in other fields. It might poison relations. And ultimately, you might not get your money back. So you want to be lending in a sensible way. And I think hopefully a lot of this would seem obvious to everybody, but you want to be lending in a sensible way that tries to benefit both parties. And that in some sense, you have to be willing to to surrender, I guess, any expectation of maybe full repayment, depending on what the goal is. If the goal is to repel Hitler, if the goal is to win World War One, if the goal is X or Y or Z, you need to think about what you'd be willing to accept in terms of the costs. We don't know how much they're going to get back, but I think it's it's a challenge and it's very hard to divorce the politics from the lending. David, we are, alas, getting close to the end of our time. 
Uh, but I want to, I have so many more questions about your fabulous book, but I, I, I want to ask at least one more before we wrap. And it has to do with the con- the possibility that was discussed about converting this uh, bilateral debt, this country to country debt into bonds and I confess, I confess that a I didn't know that the UK had this giant debt to the US that was still on the books of the US Treasury. That was news to me, which is embarrassing since I study debt. Um, but I also I also didn't know about all the various strategies that uh, were considered to ensure that the debt was paid. And Johnson Act is one of those strategies although it seems like it was partially political, but the strategy of converting the country-to-country debt into bonds and bonds that would then move into the hands of private investors, I thought that that was an idea that really comes about at the time of the Bradys, although Mark and I have now realized that that there are historical instances where countries funded themselves even in bilateral debt uh, by using bonds. But can you tell us a little bit about those discussions and who had the ideas and why they ultimately got rejected? It seems like one of the reasons why the UK doesn't want the debt to be converted into bonds is that they might actually have had to pay them. This was a really, I think, difficult issue for the British government. And I would say people that are interested in this, Robert Self's book really goes into a lot more detail on this subject. And it's it's a really important point. And I'm, I'm glad you've raised it. I'm conscious we're, we don't have a huge amount of time, so I'll be brief. But the idea seems to have been very popular early on almost immediately after the end of the First World War, as tensions rose and as Britain and France in particular were hesitant or resistant to payment. This was one of many threats that the United States government could roll out. And it was a major concern for policymakers in the British government. And we know that not just because of correspondence and discussions, but also because it was something the British government kept pressing the United States on, particularly prior to and during the 1923 agreement, that they don't want these bonds to be converted because of all the headache and all the difficulties and all the stress that that would create for the British government. And we see it pop up from time to time, even in the 1930s, even after the default, that somehow America could have done more with this opportunity and really that they still have some control or power over it. And it was something that, as you would well imagine, the British government were very keen to push against. And I think it's one of those aspects that really helped bring Britain to the table in the first place. Well, David, thank you so much for for joining us. the The book is the long shadow of default, and and I have to say, David, I so I really really enjoyed reading this. If if somebody had stopped me on the street, you know, a month ago and asked, "Did the UK pay its World War One debt to the United States?" I think I, I would have paused for a second and I would have said, "Oh wait, no, they did not." I so the episode was kind of on the periphery of my my awareness of sovereign debt markets. But as you point out in the book, if one reads the really fundamental kind of foundational treatments of 
the sovereign debt markets, they often completely overlook this episode. And I, I confess I've read I've read those treatments. I'm not going to name any of them. I've I've read them multiple times each without ever once thinking to myself, like, hey, wait a minute, there's a crucial event missing here. And um, so this this really feels like a book that needed to be written. And I I found it so, so informative and and really, um, really a pleasure to read. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. Thank you so much for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And it's a pleasure. I've listened to this podcast many, many times before. And I feel very honored that you invited me on. Thank you very much.